Hi, I'm Ryan Miner. I'm the host of a Minor Detail podcast where it's all about Maryland. We have a no-holds-barred conversation featuring Maryland newsmakers and newsbreakers, journalists, reporters, politicos, politicians, policy wonks, prognosticators, political activists, organizers, community leaders, and so many more. Man, that's a lot of peace. Here on a Minor Detail podcast, we get to the bottom of every story. We talk about news and politics in an open and honest format. And we find the minor details because every detail matters. You can follow us on the web at a aminordetailpodcast.com and aminordetail.com for the latest Maryland news and politics. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the show. It is a wonderful Sunday evening here on a Minor Detail podcast. My name is Ryan Miner. I am your host. You can find me on the web at aminordetail.com and, of course, aminordetailpodcast.com. Look, this is the premier podcast of Maryland politics, friends. And I know that a lot of other folks out there have some great podcasts, but this is where we really dip into the news. And joining me again tonight needs no introduction. Uh, our our famous Eastern Shore native, uh, the the bell of every political ball. Our resident guest analyst Lynn Foxwell is graciously spending his Sunday evening talking to little old me on a minor detail podcast. Lynn, hi. Ryan, you know, I heard that introduction, and you were talking about with other podcast, you know, the value of other podcasts. And I was trying to think of the difference between you and everybody else in the market. And my mind went back to my favorite movie of all time, which is the movie Wall Street, starring mm-hmm. Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen. And there was that great scene in the early part of the movie when Gordon Gecko looked at Bud Fox and said, "You can either you can either report the information." or you can go out and start getting me some information. <laughs> and there are a lot of people out there that report the information, that dispense conventional wisdom. You, my friend, are out there every day and every week hitting the bricks and getting information for the rest of it, rest of us. And for that, I'm very grateful. Well, I try, Lynn. And look, there's some, there's some great reporters out there. And I, I, I want to give – recognition to one reporter particularly tonight and his name is luke broadwater from the baltimore sun without luke broadwater's reporting without the baltimore sun's reporting on Catherine Pugh, her first the healthy holly scandal then her resignation and then ultimately the culmination of those events led up to this week when she was indicted and then ultimately pled guilty inside of federal court in Baltimore City, and I think Luke's reporting just blew the lid off of this massive scandal with the university systems of – and then – or rather the, uh, the, the medical board, and that to me, that is real journalism, and I, I gave Luke a shout-out on my personal Facebook. And, and look, I'm not being obsequious here. I, I'm trying to show people that – even though that journalism has come under attack in recent years, uh, especially over the last two years, I, I want to sh- I'm just pointing out to a, a prime example of a community that could do that could not do without, and that's Baltimore City in the reporting. Luke's reporting, the Sun's reporting, and several other journalists there, they fundamentally changed the outcome of the history of Baltimore City, Lynn, and that's important. That. That is so important that people keep reading and keep supporting local news because the, the men and women of these newspapers and media outlets, they are truly changing the face of the way that we receive information. And my hat is off to Luke Broadway. You know, Ryan, you're so right. There's been so much reporting lately about the demise of traditional journalism. And to be sure, the old way in which – information is communicated to consumers, the old broadsheet and tabloid-style print newspapers. That's obviously going the way of the past because that's just not how we are informed anymore. But when we start thinking about the future of journalism and we start thinking about the concept of 
of traditional reporting of news, fair, unbiased, uh, objective reporting being, you know, being uh, uh, thrown into question. And that's a scary proposition for democracy. It matters. So many studies have shown, Ryan, just as you alluded to earlier, that communities that don't have a thriving independent press corps tend to be less educated. Uh, their governments tend to be less fiscally responsible. They tend to be more corrupt because they operate in darkness and they operate in a relative vacuum. And so the work that Luke and some of the others, and I'm thinking about press operations like the Baltimore Brew and the Fishbowl and yeah. uh, WBAL, I mean, some of the others, and that's just in the Baltimore market. And you go over to the other parts of the state, and there are so many community and regional outlets doing so much great work, but it absolutely matters because we need those independent operators, trained, experienced journalists holding our elected officials and our appointed officials' feet to the fire. The yeah. quality and the integrity of our government absolutely depends on it. So I agree with you. Hats off to Luke and to all of his colleagues that are out there hitting the bricks and doing such a great job. Yeah, Luke, Kevin, Pam Wood, several other journalists at uh, at the Baltimore Sun, and look, Len, we could we could talk all night about journalism. You teach uh, you teach a, a a class that incorporates these principles and axioms that include modern media. And I, you were very gracious in asking me to speak alongside um, Susan and Josh last year to your graduate school class at the the premier institution, academic institution of Maryland, that is John Hopkins University. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, what if journalists like Josh Kurtz or, uh, you know, Luke down in the uh, covering state politics for the Sun and Vita Wiggins at the Washington Post and many others, what if they were not? Um, roaming the hallways of Annapolis and scooping these big stories. We may never heard have heard about the Marianne Lasanti scandal, and I want to call it a scandal because it was a huge ordeal last year. We may never heard have heard of some of these um, complicated legislative issues that are on the minds of so many but still cannot be relayed back home. And so I'm I'm proud of the Maryland Press Corps, and I even – and and look, Lynn, I, I goof sometimes on on Brian Sears because I, I still believe in my heart of hearts that he's a fundamentally decent guy who has been doing his job and and I think to to the best extent possible that he can and he's pretty good at it. He's a good writer and whatever falling out that he and I have had and I say this in with with clarity and understanding that I'm I'm hoping that a re, a friendship can be rekindled that. I respect him. I think that he is a good and decent and honorable man. For whatever reason, he's decided to, I guess, target me and uh, you know, make claims that I'm really not what that I am. But Len, what you see with me, as you know, you've known me pretty well, most more so than really anybody um, in Maryland politics, is that what you see for me is what you get. And I'm, I try my very best to be a straight shooter. I haven't always been perfect. I haven't always gotten it right. But I'm I'm working towards that, and I I really do. Uh, maybe next session, Brian and I can have a beer summit together, and we can sit down and talk about some of this stuff. You know, Ryan, we've talked about this for you know, several times. Journalism is in a state of transition right now, and I teach about this in my in my class, as you noted. There is a evolution taking place now in the field of journalism between the old traditional model of gathering and reporting the news. And the what I would call the second wave or the new wave, and Ryan, it's no secret you are part of a, a new wave of journalists. You are, you, you don't necessarily abide by the the old time traditional mores that defined the industry for so many decades. Uh, you you toggle back and forth between informed opinion and objective content, and you yeah. know what. That's a, ref that's a reflection of what the marketplace wants. It's a reflection of what consumers want. And I think what you and so many of your colleagues and what I call this new waiver showing is that you can do both. You can have I, opinions. I think you, don't, so. you don't have to put yourself in an ivory tower 
and segregate yourself from society. You're a human being with flesh and blood and opinions. You can express your opinions, but at the same time, when you put on that journalist cap and you go out there and put on, you know, and press the play button or the record button on the recorder and ask some objective questions, you can put all that aside and still focus on getting the story and getting it right. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I take. A, I think it's. A, I think I think really what you're saying is it's nothing more than a, a, a the, another example of the natural and the natural tension that happens between generations of journalists. But you um, and you see it in other industries as well. And would you agree, Lynn, that there's room for for everybody, and we all do something different, and we all have a a different niche. So I am a absolutely I'm, Brian. I'm I th- proud I think, of. I think there's I, I think there's room I think there's room for both. Uh, Budweiser and Flying Dog. I think there's room for, for for Sheraton and Airbnb, and I think there's room for the traditional journalists and the new hybrid model that you represent. It's called it's called progress, and you embody the progress. My friend, the only and thing the I go- can say is just keep doing what you've been doing. The goal of journalism, the goal of this entire <laughs> process, is to inform, to educate, and allow people to take the facts un, unbiased unvarnished facts and do do with them what they may and my goal is to give people information and to use that information for whatever purpose that they choose whether it be voting whether it be a a policy decision that's the goal and it's to keep people informed and that's what I wanted to do since I was a little kid so Lynn, here we are. It's uh, past the time where people can file for the seventh district. And look, Thanksgiving's coming up this weekend, and we also have a, a a fully influx Baltimore City mayoral race where the field is probably not yet completely carved out. But we'll start out with the seventh district. The deadline to apply for that vacancy, of course, when referring to a vacancy where. Um, sadly, Elijah Cummings passed away last month. We did a special show on that. And there's, what, some astronomical number of candidates who applied. And I'm looking at the State Board of Elections website. I believe there was 33 or 32 candidates who applied in total. And the race is already beginning to form, to right. take shape. And analysts like uh, Josh Kurtz, who wrote a column recently about one particular candidate and uh, about a few others, is already gaming out who are the prohibitive frontrunners at this juncture. And it's hard to already figure out what or whom is taking center stage. But, Lynn, of all the candidates – and there's some big names here – and of all the candidates, there, I, I think that there are – three or four or five candidates who are going to get a lot of the media attention. But looking at the list of candidates who signed up, we're talking about state delegates like Terry Hill, and I see Jay Jalisi has signed up, and then the former congressman, Len, I always butcher his name, and I shouldn't because I'm going to interview him sometime soon. Is it Mufume? Am I saying that right? Congressman Kwasi Mufume. Kwaize okay, so he, <laughs> I'm gonna have to like write that down. He Just he of course Kwaize. has Kwaize, he has signed up, put his name on the ballot. He's already out running uh, a full fledged campaign. Maya Rockamore Cummings, the the spouse to the late Elijah Cummings, is jumping in to the race. She has signed up. And State Senator Jill P. Carter of Baltimore City, representing the 41st Legislative District, she is running. I'm trying to think. Did I miss anybody? Oh, uh, Talmadge Branch, who is um, right. of Baltimore City, also running. And then some of the Republicans, uh, Kimberly Klasik, who was gained some notoriety this past summer for a video that she made and released on Twitter, and it was – made its way back to the president's Twitter feed, and he ultimately retweeted that. She's a Republican, Liz Matori, who mm-hmm. ran in two different congressional districts over the last four years, is now deciding to run in the 7th District, and she's running. And William Newton from Baltimore County, who has a famous beard, 
he is running and a few other names that I don't quite recognize. But, Len, let's start out with who we know. And who we know are Kweze, Maya, and Jill Carter, and, of course, some of the other state delegates. How do you rate this race? How do you rank the candidates running? And is there any front runner at this juncture, or is this a foregone conclusion in that Dr. Maya Rockamore Cummings is the likely favorite to succeed her husband in the United States Congress? Well, no, I, I wouldn't say that at all. Uh, I think this is a unique race on many levels, and I just want to call attention to a couple of the idiosyncrasies that would throw off a couple of the the, the, the traditional um, points of calculus that you might use in handicapping a, a front runner. First is that it's a, it's a special election, as, as you pointed out, to yeah. replace, um, replace you know, fill the unexpired term of Congressman Cummings, who passed away. The, because of the timing of his death, the, the, the special election is actually going to be held on February the 4th. That's early. This is a, this is a big point. It's, it's early. Um, there's, it's a singular election. There's, there's, no, there's no presidential race. There's no gubernatorial race. There's, there's nothing else on the ballot to motivate voters to get out to the polls. And what is probably, you know, assuming we have a typical meteorological winter, it's going to be freezing cold and perhaps, you know, inclement weather. So turnout is going to be absolutely imperative. This is not a race that's going to be won on the air with flashy ads and social media content. It's not to say it's not going to happen. It's not to say it's not going to help. You still have to have a message. You still have to have a way of communicating your values and your planks and your vision for the country with your with your electorate. But in a race like this, where turnout is going to be so low, and we're probably going to be dealing with uh, unique conditions like weather, that's going to make it harder for voters to get to the polls. The campaign with the best turnout operation, the best ground game, has a really a significant, if not a prohibitive, advantage. And I'm, so that's one. So that's one thing. And then, obviously, we're talking about the seventh congressional district, and this race is being played out against the backdrop of historic levels of dysfunction within Baltimore City. And, and as you know, the seventh district encompasses not only the city but also Baltimore County, and it goes into Howard County. But the lion's share of the votes are actually are obviously in Baltimore City. And as all of your uh, all of your listeners know, Baltimore City has had probably the worst single year run in its history. Yeah. Um, we've had we've had our third consecutive failed mayor. We had Cher, we had Sheila Dixon, who who resigned under you know under, uh, due to a wave of corruption, who was replaced by Stephanie Rawlings Blake, who didn't acquit herself well uh, during the Baltimore riots of 2015 and never recovered politically, succeeded by Catherine Pugh, who's now, who's now been indicted on several counts of fraud and is now going to prison. Uh, so we have political corruption. We have historic rates of murder and violent crime. I mean, we're shattering all sorts of the wrong records on those fronts. We have failing public infrastructure. We have crumbling schools. And what all this means is I think the traditional fault lines that divide candidates, left versus right, liberal versus moderate, even black versus white, male versus female, I think they take a, I think they take a distant second to those who are out and those who are in. It, it's going to be hard. My, I was going to – I'm sorry, Lynn. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Well, and and and, I, and when I, when I, where I'm going with that is um, the one candidate who I think has is going to have both the ground game uh, at her disposal because she's going to have a dedicated a dedicated voter base, a dedicated activist volunteer base, and the ability to go before the voters and say, you know what, I'm not part of that crowd. I'm not part of the establishment 
that's brought you failing infrastructure, failing schools, and failed political leadership, take a chance on me. I'm different. I'm not more of the same. It's Joe Carter. I'm not saying Joe Carter is going to win, but I, as, I'm, as I'm looking at that race right now, and I'm thinking of those three primary candidates, I see Joe Carter as being the candidate who has the most room to grow in this race. So I interviewed State Senator Joe Carter on this past Wednesday, and I was taken aback almost, and I, I, and I, I mean that pleasantly, by how re- – really how relatable she, people she is and how I, I guess I had not interviewed her prior to this. And, and I told, I, I told her that it was a, a really welcomed and engaging interview. I was impressed by her depth of knowledge. I was impressed by her ability to be an independent, be someone that is not beholden to any particular faction of Maryland's Democratic Party, and I see her having the ground game, and I see her having dedicated activists more so than others who are in this race. Now look, Maya Rockamore Cummings is going to have a lot of money. She's going to be able to use her late husband's network, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. She is the chair. She was the former chair of the Maryland Democratic Party. She just stepped down. It, rightly so. I mean, she had to, to do that uh, to, to, in order to run an effective campaign. And she may have some of the national media, but unlike Jill Carter, Dr. Cummings is still going to have to introduce herself to voters. And in fairness to her, she ran a campaign before this. She sought public office in the governorship in 2018, but she stepped out of the race because uh, her husband was experiencing some health-related issues. So as Josh Kurtz wrote, that she's going to have the consultant, and Jill Carter's going to have the organization. I see it. It's already in action, right? We see this. They have a very dedicated base of support so far, and I, I just I'm, – I'm hard-pressed to ever discount – the advocacy and strong workmanship of someone like Richard Deshay Elliott, who really leads an army of progressives in this state. He's he's one of the most <laughs> I, I hate to say senior leaders, but he's certainly someone that has availed himself to progressive candidates, progressive legislators, and I can already see this in action. And I can see how far she's come so quickly in her campaign. So I, I don't know what the other candidates are going to do. I don't know what kind of money they're going to raise, and there's some big names outside of the three that we mentioned. Talmadge Branch is an, another important candidate, but I, I'm, I will make a prediction that this seat will likely remain in Democratic hands. I don't see it shifting over into the, a, a Republican district. Do, do you – do you get that sense, Lynn, that it's going to stay within the confines of the Democratic yeah. Party? Yeah, yeah the Baltimore CD7 will remain a Democratic stronghold, mm-hmm. and, and an equally bold prediction, the Redskins will not make the playoffs this year. Um, no, I think that's, I'm sorry I think for anybody that's fair to say. Uh, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> listen, you're, you're naming some very impressive candidates. I mean, Kwasi Mfume is, is a respected national leader. For those for those of you for those of you who may be listening and don't know Congressman Infume's history, he was he was Congressman Cummings's predecessor in Congress from the seventh district. He left that seat to assume the national chairmanship of the NAACP, where he served many years with distinction. So he is a national figure should he be elected, and obviously he has a very good chance. Should he be elected, yeah. he would be a remarkable voice for Maryland, for progressive communities, and for constituencies uh, not only in the seventh and across the state who have for too long been forgotten and overlooked. Uh, Maya Rocky Moore Cummings is uh, articulate. She's she's smart. She's savvy. Uh, she has a famous last name. She is. Um, she ha- she has 
exceptional political skills. And she does. And she's and and, and brings and brings remarkable energy and passion to the endeavor. Uh, this is this will be Maya Rocky Moore Cummings' first political race. She ran hey, very very short. Yes, sir. Do you want to hear something interesting? It doesn't happen often with unprompted, but there's. It looks like somebody else is on the line. You mean to patch him in? Who is it? I don't know. I guess I don't. I don't. I don't know who it is. But sure. Uh, yeah. Let's I bring him in. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I just patched another caller in. So if Hello? you're there, yes. Hi. Hello. Hey, Ryan. It's Richard. Hi, Richard. <laughs> It's Richard Elliott. Hey, yeah, I was calling in to say hello. I saw that you were doing a segment on the seventh district race, and I was curious about uh, how you thought things were going and how you think it's going to impact the mayor's race. Hmm. Well, good question, Richard. And stay on the line with us. Len and I were just talking about um, the the three oh, candidates. <laughs> hey, Richard. Now, Richard, what, uh, your ears must have been burning because we were just talking about the seventh district race, and <laughs> and and, and, I, and I was I was talking about some of the variables. You know, one being that it's it's the you know, the, uh, the special election is going to occur mm-hmm. u- uniquely uniquely this year on February fourth. It's an idiosyncrasy of the of the calendar that mm-hmm. ties into when Congressman Cummings died, and mm-hmm. victory is more likely than not going to go to the candidate who's best able to rally their voters in mm-hmm. brutal cold, inclement weather, in a low turnout primary when there's nothing, there's no other race on the ballot to motivate voters to get to the polls. And so far that we've seen this year, at least in these early stages, Jill Carter has both uh, the fervent activist and she has an exceptional ground game being put together right now, she is going to have the resources to get those voters to the polls. Um, mm-hmm. And she's the one candidate who can also say before the voters of the seventh district, "I'm not part of. I'm not part of what has put Baltimore in this unenviable situation of failed political leadership, failing public infrastructure, crumbling mm-hmm. schools." This is a change versus more of the same election. And if she runs a race as an outsider against known insiders uh, elsewhere on the ballot, uh, I think she has the mechanics and the message to go deep in this race. Richard, let me just follow up on Lynn's point. You asked Mm -hmm. a specific question how the 7th District Congressional race would affect the Baltimore City mayoral race. And the honest answer is I don't know yet. However, there are two prominent candidates running that have a similar background that have done – uh, has a similar sort of political makeup and perspective, and we cannot me- we cannot fail to mention this evening that Sen- State Senator Mary Washington, who is in her first term as a state senator, ultimately decided to run for Baltimore City Mayor. And we're talking about Mary Washington, who I remember back in April when I sat down and talked with her one-on-one and said, are you considering this? Would you consider this? Is this something that you might want to do? And I think at the time, Senator Washington had no interest. She was focused entirely on getting through session clearly. And that was important. Clearly that was the most important part of her, of her responsibility as an elected official. But now something must have changed. And I think that there's a compelling narrative uh, to be made that Senator Washington is someone to to really consider as a a rising star. She's yeah. like Senator State Senator Jill Carter. She's she has defied the political machine in Annapolis. She has taken on some tough votes. She's not always been the favorite of the Annapolis Democratic political machine. She beat a uh, she beat someone that she wasn't supposed to beat. Same thing with Joe Carter. She didn't get the backing. She didn't get the money, but she ran a ground game and a grassroots campaign. And wouldn't it be something that two state senators, two female African-American state senators of of similar political makeup could rise to this occasion and then ultimately be elected to um, really two very important jobs um, that coincide with one another – 
with the 7th District being inside of the city of Baltimore. So that's sort of my take, and I, I'll, I'll pass it over to you, Richard, to get your take. Well, I was going to – I think this would be the most interesting thing for you to know, and that would be – I'm not going to give too many details, but I'm going to try and outline you on our plan because, as, as you've seen so far, our game is going to be almost entirely digital and ground game. Uh, so far, we've reached about 30,000 people on Facebook. Like, our reach has been about 30,000 people, and that's at the page that was created about three weeks ago. Uh, we've already given out almost a thousand pieces of literature. We've knocked about, two, or we've passed that lit at about 275 doors, and our new lit pieces coming in. And, and Richard, I, Richard, Richard just to clarify, when you say when you say we, you mean the Jill Carter campaign, right? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah, yep. Got it. Um, yeah, we're about to order our first lit pieces, and we're going to order in super bulk, and we are going to start in the neighborhood that I live in and head west. Uh, with the way that the field is carved up between – there's two particular people of, of, of late entrants who I think are very important in how this race is going to play out. Even though they don't have a chance of winning, they play an important role in the carving up, and that's going to be Terry Hill and Jay Jalisi. Terry Hill is going to be – is going to really, really dampen Maya Rocky Moore Cummings' support in Howard County because of the, the Hill family name value. And then Jay Jalisi – is going to, I think he's going to spend a lot of money to build himself up in Baltimore County, which will scare out other competitors. And meanwhile, he will also be appealing to uh, the South Asian community in Howard County. And he's independently wealthy, so that adds another variable. But that means that if this is a mostly Baltimore race for the big numbers, we can win with a very strong field campaign. And that is our goal. Well, you certainly laid out the strategy, and I. I am I'm look I'm keeping a close tab on this race. Uh, admittedly, I will tell you I was surprised somewhat to see Jay Jalisi jump into the race given his the ethical issues that transpired over this last session. So I I don't think that that's outside of the boundaries to discuss and it's no secret that Jay Jalisi is certainly not a favorite of the Annapolis uh, ins, insider club and you know for better or worse but but even still I think that that would be a talking point to be used um, if Jay Jalisi is seen to be a competitive candidate. I don't know who's competitive and, and who isn't. We're all this is all speculation. This is all game theory mm -hmm. right now. I haven't seen a single poll in this race. And Richard, have you I, I, from have I you have seen any polling? One. I have heard one, and I, I can after this call, I can give you the name of the person who gave it to me. <laughs> just for okay. fullest transparency. And this poll was supposedly from the Stephanie Rawlings-Blake campaign, or from what would have been her campaign, excuse me. And <laughs> it was quite easy. Was it 28%? Maya was at 21%. Jill was at 17%. Stephanie Rawlings-Blake was at 9%. And then 25% was undecided. But it only hmm. had those four candidates, and we are working on doing a poll from the Joe Carter campaign that's going to include uh, 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 Jill, Maya, Kwaizi, Terry Hill, and Delegate Branch. Well, that's, that's good information. Len, um, and Richard, stay on the line with us if you could. Mm -hmm. Len, in addition to the 7th District, we talked a little bit about that. This race for Baltimore City Mayor, and it, it right. felt like a an important – point this past week and I felt the gravity of this mayoral race given that Catherine Pugh looks like she's on her way to jail. She mm -hmm. pled guilty to a a number of federal crimes and it's a sad story really. It really is a sad story for someone who was um, a, a promising person, a promising candidate was elected during a time of tumult for the city of Baltimore and Having gone through the Freddie Gray situation in 2015 with uh, former Mayor Stephanie Rollins-Blake, going through the ch now that the, this mayor was uh, it, it, it pled guilty to cor corruption and using her position of power to uh, for fun financial gain, it, it's it's a sad time for Baltimore City, and I think candidates they have an opportunity to capitalize on 
refocusing the narrative, cleaning up the city of Baltimore in the sense of reducing crime and poverty and homelessness. And I will say this, Lynn and Richard, that Baltimore City is is really the heart and soul of the state of Maryland, the economic engine. It is the motor of this city. It is a cultural uh, – it is our cultural landmark of the state of Maryland. And when people diss the city of Baltimore, I got to tell you, yeah, sometimes I know that what they're saying is is not always is is not always true, but there is some kernel of truth in that things need to get better. But I really take great offense when people are trashing this city and have no solutions to fix it. Fine, you can complain, but you better present an alternative if you're going to go and trash the city and trash its leadership. And I really thought that it was unfair. The attacks that were aimed at, at at former congressman at the late congressman Cummings for for not doing uh-huh. anything in his district that was that was an unfair attack. Congressman Cummings loved his district. He loved the people, and he put his heart and soul into ensuring that his district was well taken care of to the very best of his ability. I'm not defending him. I'm not. I'm certainly not taking his side on every issue. But Lynn and Richard. Here was a guy who really did a great deal of good for the people of Baltimore. So with that, I'm, I'm sort of interested in bouncing around what's going to happen in this mayoral race. There's already several uh-huh. declared candidates. There's Brandon Scott. Um, Jack Young ultimately decided to enter the race and when he said that he probably wouldn't. And we have Thiru Vignaraja is running hard and uh-huh. releasing plans. And, of course, State Senator Mary Washington. So how's this primary going to play out, fellas? Yeah, well, listen, I can I, try and give you my – oh, well, Len, you can go ahead. I'll, I'll go last. I got you. Well, I, I, it's not dissimilar in, in dynamic to what we were discussing just a few minutes ago with the 7th District race, where you have two recognizable you know, uh, figures within the Democratic establishment – running against someone who has spent her entire political career as an outsider. Here we have, I mean, there are other, there are other candidates in this race. You mentioned through Vinyaraja, you, you know, also running as TJ Smith, who is the Baltimore County police spokesperson who is, uh, has come back to Baltimore city and is going to run and is going to be running on a uh, crime prevention platform. But at this point in the race, I think the three primary candidates you'd have to focus your attention on are the incumbent mayor, Jack Young, the council president, mm-hmm. Brandon Scott, and uh, mm-hmm. the latest entry into the field, State Senator Mary Washington. Now, yeah. again, and I cannot emphasize this point strongly enough, Baltimore is in a state of crisis. And if you just ask the old Ronald Reagan question, are you better off now than you were four mm-hmm. years ago? Boy, I think we know. I think we know what the overwhelming response would be for the residents of Baltimore City. The city is awash in crime. The schools are failing. They're they're freezing in the winter. They're sweltering in the summer. They're crumbling at the seams, and they're not doing the job of preparing kids for success and in an information-based economy. Uh, the 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 public infrastructure, the streets, the roads. Uh, are are literally coming apart. the 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 list of the list of dysfunctions. We could sit here for the rest of the rest of the hour and talk about it. And so if if you if you accept the premise that when things are going bad and people are dissatisfied with the status quo, that that doesn't necessarily bode well for incumbents and political insiders. Then you got to assume that's not going to bode well for the incumbent mayor and the incumbent council president. Mm-hmm. And on Mary Washington, who who is a quintessential outsider, she's been in the House of Delegates, you know, for a couple of terms, but she was never one of the insiders. She was never part of leadership. She ran against the machine in 2018, as you correctly pointed out, beat a personal a personal lieutenant of Mike Miller's and Joan Carter Conway, and she's coming in as an alternative to the status quo that has brought us not one, not two but three consecutive failed mayoral administrations. I think she's going to have a compelling message. She's battle-tested because just a year ago, she knocked, she knocked out a committee chairman who was as good at the game as anybody I've ever seen. And um, 
I think she's. I think it, as we speak, she's in the process of assembling a pretty good team, and she's going to come out of the holiday season ready to run. And right now, I looking at looking at some of the polling numbers that's been reported in publications like Maryland Matters. She has a lot of room to grow right now. She has an opportunity to define herself to voters who don't know who she is or don't know her well, but are clearly looking about for an alternative. Yeah, this race is very much situated. This race is very much in flux. I'll try and give her a report on the ground in Baltimore. And I, I fully agree that the three big candidates, the ones who have a shot of winning are Scott Young and Washington. Uh, the, the other players of note, I think, that are going to influence how the race breaks down are there's T.J. Smith, there's Sheila Dixon, who I think if she enters is the prohibitive front runner, but whose entrance is a, is a boon for Mary Washington, and Stokey Kennedy, uh, who is running in the same West Baltimore base as Sheila Dixon would be. Uh, but the... For the mayor's race, I believe that at present, Brandon Scott is pretty much dead in the water. He falls in an unfortunate middle in Baltimore politics. Uh, He does not really inspire volunteer support. He does not inspire grassroots volunteers. He just happens to have the support of of the old establishment that has mostly crumbled around him. But he also does not have grand fundraising ability. And as I've noted to many other people, if you look at Brandon Scott's announcement for mayor – which he'd been preparing for for about a month. He's known he's wanted to be mayor for a decade. The that event only had 27 people, and I was in his neighborhood. So, and and from there, you know, his campaign office opening. None of that you could, you couldn't. Uh, sorry, there's a there's a cat that just came up to me. Uh, there's there's been no momentum for Brandon Scott, and. Even his only real advantage over Jack Young is that Brandon Scott has commanded media attention. But if you pay attention to – now that there's so much other stuff going on, Brandon is kind of drowned out by the abundance of information. Or I'm not going to – by the presence of other stuff at least. And this election I think is going to have a rarity of there's going to be dueling slates across the city. Brandon Scott is going to have a slate that's going to include several incumbent city council members as is Jack Young, and Mary Washington has said that she's going to go with uh, three or four different city council members as well. So there's going to be a whole lot of variables that are going to affect the race. And from what I have been told, I'm not certain of this yet, I believe that Senator Washington is supporting Joe Carter for the congressional seat. That that is not verified, but if you ask Senator Washington, uh, you will be able to verify that information. Well, I I think that uh, when I talked to Senator Carter on Wednesday evening, she she all but said that Mary Washington was her candidate. Now she obviously okay. did not give a an official endorsement, but she certainly yeah. seems on board. And in fact, she referred to yeah. to Mary Washington as her girl. And that's look, <laughs> they have very similar narratives. I mean, it's dual tracks. They uh-huh. have there's a lot of parallels between. Uh, the two women uh, who were elected to serve the city of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. So, and and I think that this, well, there's a beautiful opportunity here because uh, I fully agree we are in a state of crisis. But through both Jill and Mary's campaigns, I, I'm Jill's campaign manager. Full disclosure, but one of our big messages is getting rid of opportunity zones that give the planks millions of dollars of taxpayer subsidies and returning federal investment directly to city and county budget that we can earmark for school construction, for infrastructure improvements, for high, uh, for high-speed internet uh, installation, for the general needs of the city, which is what was the case before Reagan gutted federal investment in the cities and then Clinton created opportunity zones. And if we can bring that kind of system back, we will have a lot more resources with which we can make Baltimore into a world-class city again. You know, Richard, I want to bring up an important distinction and point in that mm-hmm. I, someone who functions in within the, the new media realm in Maryland politics, I, I, I appreciate you calling in tonight. I really do. And I think mm-hmm. that you guys have, have really hit the media, the social side, where people are hanging out, where they're, they're, they're 
people people use social media to f- to find out what's going on, right? I mean, that's that's what we do. Mm-hmm. I, I know that engaged politicos in the state of Maryland will take to social media, whether it be Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatnot, mostly Facebook and Twitter, to find out what's going on. So I give you kudos, Richard, for really targeting people that – no, I'm serious because I think candidates have this weirdly, uh, I guess, arcane viewpoint of who they can talk to and who they, they shouldn't talk to or rather who where, where they're wasting their time. And I have to tell you, mm-hmm. this podcast five years ago started out as – Nothing. Where a few people were listening, it grew and grew and grew, and now we're getting you know several thousand hits every time we we listen. That every time I put out an episode, and that it, it, look, it's taking a lot of work and it's it's taking a lot a lot of time. But I I, I give you credit. Like it, it seems like you get it. Like you get where the conversation <laughs> is moving. That's important. And Lynn teaches this stuff, right, Lynn? I mean, you you know how these conversations are driven. Well, I do, and you know one of the, one of the things I teach in my class. And Richard, I gotta bring you in at some point, man, because you could give an on the ground lecture like nobody else. Ryan, you've already been in my class a couple of times. It usually been an takes honor. politicians, and it takes the political system a few years to catch up to societal progress. I mean, you know, long after the rest of us started to understand that we could ditch the old traditional way of communicating with our public audience by going hat in hand to a friendly publisher or editor and seeking his or her beneficence to get the message out, we could actually get on a laptop or on a phone and, and talk directly to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. We all knew that years before the political process and the political practitioners began to wake up to it. Um, and I still think it's a, I still think it's a generational thing. Um, Richard, I do have a I do have a question. I'd love to get your thoughts from being on the uh, ground. You know, you talked about Brandon, we've talked about Mary, but one we, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about Jack Young yet. And the question I have for you, yeah. based on what you've seen on the ground, is what kind of ground game do you think the mayor has at this point? And number two, is there any meaningful grassroots enthusiasm for Jack Young? Who's been a long time public no, servant? No, no, yeah. Tell me what you see, man. I, 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 I dare say that I do not believe that Jack Young's campaign will knock a single door. I believe that they're. It's not going to be like in, in, you know, in name, but I think that they are effectively going to employ the low turnout urban election strategy, where they try to keep awareness as low as possible, except for sending mail to like their super voters so that as few people turn out as possible. I believe that basically at the core of it, the Jack Young campaign goal is to make as few people aware of the election as possible and then win by bombing the super, mailer, the super voters with mail. There is the grassroots enthusiasm and Jack Young don't belong in the same sentence. I saw the pictures of his launch. There were about as many people at Jack's launch as we had at Jill's launch, which was basically me planning it from my phone with about a week to go, whereas Jack has been able to plan that for months and has infinite resources. So I, I, not, I to men- that- not, not, not to mention, not to mention an entire, you know, an entire universe of city workers and patronage appointments who can, you know, who can fill mm-hmm. up, a, fill up a bandstand upon command if they yep. need bodies and announcement. Yep. Exactly. Uh, and they still were able, barely able to do that. And uh, right now, there's the uh, there's two things I'd like to bring up that are happening in the city now. One of them is a it is a rumor. I do not wish to put it into the public record as fact, but it is a rumor that I've heard from several different places without any clear origin, and that is that Jack Young is supposedly under investigation. That is not assuming that Jack Young is in in the Healthy Holly investigation necessarily, but I do believe that Jack Young is under investigation now, probably for basically intimidation to get campaign donations. And I also think that Joan Pratt, the current Baltimore city comptroller is going to get indicted alongside Pew because that was her tax preparer and business partner. The number two thing is that in the city right now, they're doing sewer maintenance everywhere all at once without there really having been any preparations. 
and it's pissing a lot of people off. But Mary's reform message, especially coming basically on the heels of the few indictments coming to light, I think it's going to – like the social media enthusiasm for Mary surpassed – and that was just for her, you know, the tepid uh, – the Baltimore Sun saying that she was going to announce. This is without her having, you know, had the really big event or talking big about policy yet. So I truly think that Mary Washington can win the race if she can run very strong on the issues, have ground, have digital – well, have digital sewn up and uh, – and get maybe about 40, 40, uh, 38 to 40,000 votes, hmm. which is about you, the same number we're aiming for with Jill, actually. You know, you know Brian, uh, Ryan, I want to just, just piggyback on what Richard said, and I want to talk about an interesting, an interesting element of Mary's message when she announced. And I go back to a story that uh, came out in Maryland Matters over the past week, where they were reporting on a poll that asked the voters the question, would you rather have a committed progressive or would you rather have a pragmatist? And what I saw in Mary's announcement message was, was, was confirmation that we can have both and we should expect to have both. That these are not mutually exclusive values. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that Mary has impeccable progressive credentials, but if you look at what she yeah. was actually saying in her announcement, she's talking about reforming customer service, improving yes, the exactly. quality of government. Exactly. Ref- yes, improving the caliber of government service for people who just want a, a knowledgeable voice and a human being on the, on the other end of the phone, uh, she's talking about cutting property taxes because people are already, you know, low and moderate income residents and working mm-hmm. people are already stretched beyond their natural limit, mm-hmm. and they're being forced to leave the city because they just can't afford to live here anymore. She's yep. talking about strengthening an economy based on small and independent businesses that are the foundational basis of any city or any urban or statewide economy. And those are not what you would, you know, government efficiency, fiscal responsibility, um, accountability. Those are not themes that you necessarily always equate with a progressive candidate, but man, we should because, because we, because Peter Francis, Mm -hmm. my boss, has said it so many times, and Richard, you've heard him say it. You can't have social responsibility. You can't accomplish the big sweeping transformational change mm-hmm. if we don't prove that we can get the little things right. Uh, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. And at the city level, where for most people they don't know, they might not know who their city council person is, but they know that the Department of Public or uh, the DPW is not getting the trash often enough. Or yeah, they know right. that the streets are so messed up that you have to replace your, your tires two and three times a year. Or all of the other medley of problems. And with this cycle, with the, with the combining, number one, a congressional race that I think is going to raise awareness on issues a lot, especially if I'm doing my job or if the Jill team is doing our job. Number two, there's going to be a lot of city council candidates who are running on really, really interesting platforms. For instance, uh, in some of the newcomers, Logan Endow, I am his treasurer, running in District 40, who wants to get let out of schools and rehab vacant homes, and Joe Kane in District 14, and David Hilker in District 12, and Felicia Porter in District 10. And the, we thought that 2016 was going to be a big change election in Baltimore City. I think 2020 is going to cement what Baltimore City government is like for the next eight to maybe even 12 years. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of big changes. Rich, let me ask you a question. Since, since you just mentioned some of the city council races, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's, not, there's, another race, there's another race that's happening, and that is, and I believe it's Councilman District 14, if I have my district uh-huh. right. This is the yep. race that pits Joe Kane against yep. uh, longtime civic activist Adela Ramos, and that's yep. one of those uh, – one of those proxy battles like we used to see between the U.S. Mm-hmm. and the Soviet Union back in the 80s when <laughs> they, would, they, would fight, they would fight their battles in far-flung outposts. This is another one mm-hmm. of these Mary Washington, Maggie McIntosh yep. races with Mary supporting Joe Kane and 
Chairwoman McIntosh and supporting Adela Ramos. What do you see on the ground in that race? Okay, and th- this is being said uh, as a Joe Kane supporter in Joe Kane's district and somebody who is going to be partnering with Joe Kane to pass out lit on election day for Jill. Uh, Joe has been knocking for over a year, and Joe has done, I believe, four passes of, uh, net- uh, of networks of 14,000 voters. I think that was it. I believe each pass was of 13 or 14,000 voters. And he's done four passes, and each pass was him deep canvassing their communities over and over and over again. Odette has also done three passes, but that was simply lit drops. So, and with this universe of voters, these are highly educated. You know, this, this is a this is the Hopkins district, probably one of the highest concentrations of masters and PhDs in a in a councilmanic district that you could find in the country, if not the world. Very high turnout. And Joe has been working really hard. And then with the backing of the, the, you know, the state senator, the beloved state senator, who I, everybody has respect for, and the, the comptroller, uh, I believe that Mary Pat Clark's early endorsement and mailer on behalf of Odette was because Odette was not gaining the traction or momentum they needed. And if they really thought that Odette had this wrapped up, they would be operating differently and using their resources to help somebody else out. So I think that Odette is in trouble and that Joe is probably going to win. And now that Mary is running for mayor, I definitely think Joe is going to win. And he's going to have my support at the polls on Election Day in April, along with as much of the Jill team as we can get. Well, guys, and Ryan, I, I, want, I, I know we have to wrap up soon, but I want to, I want to, I want to go back to what Richard was talking about earlier with with Jack Young's evidence strategy of keeping this keeping turnout as depressed as possible. If that is in fact the political strategy of the Young operation, the challenge is that there are a lot of other races on the ballot that's going to inspire people to get to the polls yep. and cast ballots. We sure. have a, we, exactly. you know, it's very it's very possible, if not likely, that we're still going to ha- that Maryland's going to play a role in the presidential primaries this year. Mm-hmm. With yeah, with yeah. Over, we'll still have probably a dozen candidates on the ballot at that point, and I <laughs> I find it difficult to believe that that race is going to be wrapped up by the time the the campaign the the, uh, the primaries come to Maryland, and we have races like Joe Kane and Odette Ramos. We have Nicole Harris Crest running against Logan Endow, who's a really impressive young man in the fourth council mm-hmm. district. This is not. It, it, I could see that being a viable strategy if, if, if we had one of these special elections in the dead of winter. But this isn't. But, uh-huh. but this isn't that. No, there's going to be energy and enthusiasm I, on the street. Yeah, Jack Young's entire campaign operation is going to be as simple as they're going to do mailers, and they're probably going to delay doing the mailers until very, very close to the election day, and they're going to put signs up all over the place. They're not going to knock any doors. Jack Young's, like, Facebook operation is a joke. It's smaller than my personal Facebook operation. Um, They're probably going to buy television ads, but those are ludicrously expensive. Uh, and I, I don't really know what message the Jack is trying to you know, give to the voters. Uh, but the worst thing for Jack now is going to be that Sheila Dixon entering the race. And Sheila Dixon and Jack appeal to the same pool of about 85,000 voters. Yep. So if, if Senator Washington can pull through and get something like 38, 39, 40,000 votes, she will be the mayor. And she already received about 11,000 last time. So she's also a, a really positive start, I'd say. Well, and you're, gentlemen, and you're, and you're, and you're so right. Gentlemen, I want to mention like, 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 likes are, like, likes aren't, Facebook likes aren't necessarily translatable to votes, but there is something <laughs> oh. to be said in this day and age. Of gauging a candidate's viability by the by the grassroots enthusiasm that he or she generates, and right mm-hmm. now we're seeing it from the Washington camp, and we're actually seeing it from the Carter camp. Long way to go, but both campaigns are off to really, really good starts. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to mention that this was been a this has been a great discussion, and yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, no, I, and so 
outside of politics, Thanksgiving is this Thursday, and I mentioned in the show's title that we would just briefly touch on any Thanksgiving <laughs> traditions that we were will will be will be partaking in, and so my Thanksgiving will be spent with my family in Hagerstown with my wife and our kids. And we'll be heading up to my my mom's house, and so we uh, we get together usually on Thanksgiving around one o'clock every year, and we have a big feast. And then I will visit with my my dad's side of the family, and uh, I usually visit them later in the afternoon, and we have dessert and whatnot. And then every year on Black Friday. <laughs> My family, um, my wife and our two kids, Josh and Paige, we play this ultimate game of Monopoly. So we start out at like 6 o'clock, and Kim and I, we usually have either wine or beer or uh, maybe some tangeray, and we go until we actually end the game. And I think our record was 12 hours uh, one year. So that, wow. that's what – yeah, oh, yeah, that's what we'll be doing. Um, Len, what about you? What's your – Thanksgiving traditions. I know you'll probably be bumping into your your wonderful sister Julia. Well, we're hosting this year, and my wife is already a whirling dervish, and she she's, <laughs> she just went out and bought up half the Eastern Giant, and she informed <laughs> me that I, can, I I'm not allowed to eat any of that food that's now filling our two refrigerators because uh. it's all for it's all for Thursday, so. Uh, you know, we're hosting my sister Julia and her her husband, our, fr- our mutual friend Sushant, and my parents. And I'm just very thankful because a lot of families this time of year have to deal with yeah. memories and loss of loved ones. And my family, I am so blessed. They're healthy. We're together, um, and we can enjoy the pleasure of one another's company because we live relatively close by. And then Black Friday. Um, very quick. I'm buying the we're buying the tree. My wife throws me out of the house so she can actually decorate. And uh, I think Patriot Acres Brewery is opening early this year for Black Friday, and they're staying open late. So I plan to go up there with a couple of my buddies and um, drink my way through Black Friday. But before I before I let go, let me just say um, one of the things I'm thankful for is both of you, Richard and Ryan. Thank you. We're, 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 we're political hey. colleagues. I value your counsel and advice, but I've really come to think of both of you as dear friends over the course of time. And uh, um, I'm honored and touched by your friendship and, uh, this year and hopefully for many, many more. Yes, sir. Amen. Richard, what are you doing for Thanksgiving, my friend? Uh, I'm going to do a giant lit drop, and then I'm going to go home and eat whatever food is left. <laughs> All I'm, 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 I'm trying to do everything to make sure Joe can win. If Joe wins, that will be really transformative for how Baltimore City and Maryland politics operate. She said that if she wins, she'll eventually want to go to the Senate, and I'm here to help that happen. Wow. Well, that's that is a that is a dedicated staffer. That is a dedicated campaign <laughs> manager, and. I too am thankful for both of your friendships. I'm thankful that for um for the health and of my of my family, uh especially my my grandparents who are 94, 87 and 79 respectively and my granddad who's 90 94 years old, a World War II veteran, uh the greatest man I've ever known is uh is is with us and happy and will enjoy another Thanksgiving with us. So um, I'm blessed. I I'm, I really am, and I'm thankful for, for both of you for joining me tonight. Um, good discussion, fellas. I mean, this is, this is where – Thank you. Yeah, uh, I like it too. Yeah, so Richard, you're invited back at any time. You have a standing invitation. Lynn, um, you know the drill. When I, whenever I ask Lynn, I'll say, hey, Lynn, do you want to come on? And it, it could be on a Thursday or maybe a Wednesday, and Lynn's like, let's do it. And he's he's never turned me down once, and that's uh, that's the demarcations of a true friendship where he doesn't he doesn't turn me down when he could be doing he's you know Lynn probably has five hundred other things to do so. I kind of I, I gotta tell you I, I 
I like the, I kind of like this idea of the three man booth here. I think we should do more. Of yeah, these, yeah, yeah. Can, can we do one of these like in late December, like in that time period between like Christmas and the New Year? So oh, like yeah. maybe December the twenty seventh, and do this for like an hour and have people call in. We we can Love do it. this at any time. I I have the software where we can make it. I could take this thing on the road if if you wanted me to. I have a <laughs> Lynn. <laughs> Lynn has seen my expansive setup where I pull stuff out of a suitcase and start unpacking, and it was like it's unreal sometimes to see me set this stuff up. Um, so, well, gents, I will let you get back to your evening, and uh, I hope that you have a wonderful and successful week and a very happy Thanksgiving and holiday. So be safe, um, be well, and uh, thank, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. And, um, yeah, so we'll keep following the story. Bye-bye. You got it. All hey, right. Richard, I'm gonna give you. If you're around tomorrow, I'll give you a ring on the way into the office. Okay. I think he dropped the call, Len. It was a. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. You too, Thank buddy. you so much, my friend. See you, Ryan. Thanks for the opportunity, right. as always, man. Happy See Thanksgiving. You, you as well. Len Foxwell and Richard Deshay Elliott, both, both prominent politicos in this state. Always a an informed opinion. I appreciate everybody listening. Thanks, everybody. I hope you have a wonderful and happy and safe Thanksgiving. Eat lots of turkey and lots of pie and whatever else that you fix and enjoy your families and take time to tell them how much you appreciate them and how much you love them, especially have if you have aging grandparents like I do. My grandparents are everything to me. They're my world. I love them more than anything in this world. And every day I am grateful that that they are part of my life and that they have inspired me to be who I am today and my parents as well and my my wife and are my kids. So take this holiday and enjoy it and spend it with family and the people you love. Thanks for listening everybody. Check me out on the web at a minor detail.com and a minor detail podcast.com. I hope you have a wonderful and successful week. You can subscribe to a Minor Detail podcast on iTunes, CastBox, Overcast, or any application where you listen to podcasts. Like a Minor Detail podcast on Facebook and follow the conversation on Twitter at AMD Podcast. If you or someone you know is interested in sponsoring a Minor Detail podcast, please reach out to me at ryan at a minor detail.com. Thanks so much for listening.